Uh, my name is Jim O'Donnell, and this is the uh, Taos Land Trust Hour that we have here bi-weekly. Uh, I'm here with Ben Wright. He's also with the Taos Land Trust, and Ben is running the youth crews that are doing a lot of the restoration work at the Taos Land Trust this year. Uh, so, yeah, Ben, good morning. Good morning, Jim. How are you today? Good. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for joining us. Ben used to host a a world music show here on KNCE a couple of years ago. So um, he's going to point out uh, my mistakes as I'm still learning the learning yeah, the board you're here. Doing fine. <laughs> yeah. It's been uh, it's been a little while since we shook the pumpkin. That was the name rush. I was shaking the pumpkin. Oh, okay. All right. All right. I, I missed that show. <laughs> um, so. Again, this is Jim O'Donnell, and I'm here with Ben Wright. We're with the Taos Land Trust, and we're going to talk today about the restoration work that we're doing at Rio Fernando Park. And really, I want to dive into this issue of invasive species at the park. So, Ben, let's start out by talking a little bit about yourself. Where are you from, and why are you doing this work? I'm originally from Philadelphia, and um, I've been here in Taos, New Mexico for the last 20 three years coming coming on now so I've uh, become well acquainted with the landscape here and uh, many people here and really uh, enjoy being here in Taos. I was a carpenter for many years and uh, built homes through the area and uh, ultimately I think that um, I found uh, limits to my interest in building homes and I really wanted to uh, explore other ideas of using wood and so I became really interested in trees and uh, that led me back to school and I studied uh, tree biology and I studied conservation biology and uh, I really focused in on living trees rather than dead ones so I and ultimately I became an arborist and pruning trees and had a company uh, working on trees and pruning trees taking care of trees uh, and it's challenging. It's hard to take care of trees in this high desert environment. It's as we are seeing this summer. It's extremely dry, and uh, it's extremely challenging taking care of trees when there's just not enough water to go around. But I, I think part of my vision of caring for trees. I mean, a couple things. Uh, I really see trees as part of uh, an ecological network of other organisms. And so when I'm thinking about trees, I'm not just thinking about individual organisms. I'm thinking about all of the other plants surrounding the trees. I'm thinking about the insects. I'm thinking about the soil biology. And so it's really more of a holistic concept of uh, what it means to care for, for trees. The other thing is that in the last couple of years, I uh, continued my schooling by uh, getting a master's degree at Oregon State University in urban forestry. And um, that really followed another interest, which, which is really um, about the integration of people with nature, with trees, people, uh, urban, urban meaning just developed areas. So most people don't think of Taos as an urban area, but uh, there's a, you know, urbanization just has to do with how we uh, apply development on the landscape. And so urban forestry is looking at trees in developed environments. And so there's a whole array of other challenges that you don't see for trees uh, living more in, in uh, a natural setting. So, you know, really my interests now are holistic care of trees and landscapes, uh, particularly in how people are organized around these landscapes. 
and within the landscapes. Right. And earlier this spring, we had a class, a uh, nature writing class at uh, Taos Land Trust that was uh, that I ran through SOMOS. And one of the main questions was just about, just specifically about what you just brought up is, is human integration, uh, looking at nature writing and the art of nature writing, not necessarily as just a celebration of nature, but looking at how nature writing in terms of how people impact the environment and how people interact with the environment and at what level we have separated ourselves out and shouldn't. Yes, uh, I agree. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of the problems, environmental problems we're having are due to a fractured relationship between people and nature. And so, I mean, even in the example of uh, protecting wilderness areas, and, you know, they're very valuable for a number of reasons, but I think the many efforts have been to preserve these areas without human interactions and to keep people out, basically, because, you know, we perceive ourselves as nothing but damaging, which, you know, history would concur with that. <laughs> right. But I think that true solutions lie in a, a deeper look at the, the relationship and trying to... Um, find ways to interact in more positive ways in natural settings. So, I mean, it is very much about how we perceive nature, how we perceive ourselves in nature. And, you know, I mean, this is a topic that, you know, people have written entire books and studied their whole lives. And we're probably... We've been reading these books. We've been reading these books. And, you know, I'm influenced by a lot of these writers, as are, as are you, Jim. And so I think that a lot of thought needs to go into how we interact with landscapes, how we manage landscapes, how we um, work with each other, how we collaborate uh, between community members and different groups and, you know, gain the, a common vision on how, how we're going to be caring. Right. Yeah. Just the wilderness issue is, is fascinating to me as, as a former Northern director for the New Mexico Wilderness Alliance. You know, I'm a total wilderness advocate, but I, I agree that, you know, th there were many reasons that the Wilderness Act and, and the concept of wilderness came to be, but one of those was because people were looking at our destruction of the natural environment and thinking, oh my God, we've got to protect what little remains, it, almost as a stopgap measure in place of how can we interact better with the natural environment. Right. And um, the, the stopgap measure, I mean, you, I mean, I think we can all see the need for that. I mean, you know, so to stop logging and, you know, some of the most pristine wildernesses that are left, I mean, they're very small at this point. But um, I mean, there, there were emergency measures that needed to be taken just to, you know, preserve some of these areas. But I think in the long run, I mean, that and I think that's a good thing. I have no doubt about that. But I think that uh, the idea of uh, our concept of what nature is, is very impaired. And I think that things like the Wilderness Act give the sensation that nature is something to be preserved in a stable state. Mm -hmm. And ecologically speaking, I mean, the idea of a, a, a stable state in nature is, is not really, it's not a reality. And I mean, this concept uh, has been changing over many years, but I mean, now they're understanding natural processes to be more in uh, the realm of, they call it dynamic equilibrium. So thing, so accepting that nature is always changing and shifting and responding to climate, responding to the activities of different species. And so, I mean, it's hard to say, you know, that it should, that nature should be preserved in any particular point in time. And, you know, and I think the attempts to do that actually 
go against management objectives, you know, which is, I mean, one perhaps being preserving or uh, maintaining species diversity, uh, maintaining uh, e ecosystem resilience, these kinds of things. And if, if we're not accepting nature as something that's changing over time, then our efforts to manage these things effectively are, are backfiring, basically. Right. It's, it's a little hard to see on the radio, but I'm nodding my head in agreement, <laughs> which I just realized. Right, exactly. And I think that, you know, we're just talking about the fire at the top of the hour and... That's a, that's a good example. Um, right. It's a perfect example, right? I, last night on, on my Facebook page, I posted some pictures I had taken of the, of the fire, and a friend of mine had commented that it was really sad to see that forest burn. And that really goes to what you're saying is, is the concept that we've come to see nature as really static. It's, it's a thing. The forest is a thing instead of a process. And so when, when we get these fires in here, which are a natural part of this landscape, I think a lot of people panic. Obviously, if the fire is close to a settlement, to buildings and, and property, there's a reason to panic. But in areas where, where this, this fire southeast of Taos is burning now, this, uh, this is part of the natural process. This is part of, of that constant shift in the ecosystem. Yeah, and um, I mean, I think as a lot of a lot, and I think the science is also changing, and people's attitudes are changing to accept that fire is a natural part of the landscape here, right? And that without fire, I mean, the it's not things are not going to be functionally functioning properly. So the problem, of course, as you mentioned, is that fire is also conflicts with uh, human settlements, and. Um, I mean, we see a forest fire as a, a tragic event, and I, I think this attitude is changing somewhat. But um, traditionally, I mean, over the last hundred years, we've seen it as something tragic and should be prevented at all costs. And the Forest Service has has uh, implemented programs to suppress all wildfires. But I'd say, you know, in the last 25 years, that attitude has been changing and, and understanding that fires are serving this very valuable role in just maintaining the ecosystem. Certain fires are allowed to burn, and you know that in the end is a good thing. But so we have to think about how we can allow certain fires to burn. You mentioned that this this fire was perhaps a good fire, behaving properly, and in a place where there's not too many structures or things to protect that are valuable to us. Right. <laughs> and so perhaps this, you know, I mean, it's hard to say. It's still early in the the life of this fire, and you know, it's certainly. Uh, threatening and scary to all of us right. um, and the, and the, especially given the conditions right now yeah i mean it's just there's there's little that can be done to stop it without you know some help from the weather right so that's a that's a good segue into invasive species um a couple weeks ago you and i were talking about what constitutes an invasive species and um, I was just thinking about, in terms of this fire, about humans on the landscape. And, and in, our, in the course of that conversation we had, we talked ourselves about uh, humans as an invasive species. I mean, the, it's been well argued that uh, humans are the ultimate invasive species because, I mean, really, so just to back up a second, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't really, I try not to use the word invasive species, although I use it all the time. I mean, because invasive implies that these species are acting of their own accord and invading our, our landscapes. And right. I don't really... So maybe we step back for a second and, and let's define an invasive species. I understand you, that you don't like to use that term, and I, and I totally get it. I use it anyway. <laughs> but, but that yeah, it is the most common term that we use right now. So I think that's what people will recognize. So let's define that first. 
Well, there's many words for the same thing. Weeds, aggressive competitors, I mean, but basic are non-native species. And, you know, of course, not all non-native species are bad because, you know, look at agriculture, look at all the plants we have around our homes. But what we think of as invasive species or species, uh, undesirable species, which, well, that idea changes over time, of course, but um, are, are there weeds? Uh, they're, they're plants that we would rather not have around. Right. Undesirables. Undesirables. <laughs> I've, been calling them, I've been calling them that. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about what's happening at Rio Fernando Park. But uh, basically, we're making a decision on which species, what we want our landscapes to look like, who, who we want to be participating in our landscapes. So, I mean, this is a far-ranging topic, but... Um, Basically, I mean, my understanding is that the plants that I mean, and I'm talking specifically about plants because that's and plants and trees because that's that's what I know. I don't know as much about animals and and uh, other, you know. There's a lot of problems like in the Great Lakes with mussels, right. zebra mussels, are causing or in them. Florida with the pythons and and the yeah the the nutri- nutria and nutria yeah. yeah yeah so I mean, but people discuss this quite a lot and sometimes without really like thinking it through but the idea that human beings are the ultimate invasive species is the idea that basically i mean these these uh competitors these highly successful species that seem they seem to follow us around and they they're attracted to our activities in the case of plant species many uh invasive species really like disturbed landscapes and that's something we are very good at. Disturbing we, landscapes. We disturb things everywhere we go, everything we do. I mean, even agriculture is a, you know, magnificent disturbance. And, you know, it's a necessary disturbance. And, you know, certainly there's uh, techniques of doing it more in line with natural processes. But basically, like, when you plow up a field, you're disturbing that landscape. And you are inviting the most viable plants to come in there and so like you may want to plant your beans or your corn or uh, whatever but you know you're also going to get a lot of other things and you know in this area there's certain species that are that really like this dry climate they like our soils i think of uh, cochia right or kosha i think it is the better pronunciation um and you know so when you plow up a field you'll often see kosha coming up right and you know and it's an annual it's easily suppressed but you have to work with it so, so these so these species that um this is something i'd like to get we got to take a break here in a minute but i'd like to get dive further into is these these species are are very attracted to our to, to us and to our activities upon the land and so they essentially follow us around yeah that's right i mean um and you know you can look all over the planet and there's I mean, we're, we're, our activities are basically moving plants and seeds all over the place. And so, I mean, well, I, I think it, it would be obvious that all these species evolved in a natural setting somewhere. And um, so what's invasive here in Taos, New Mexico is not considered invasive, you know, in the East Coast somewhere or, right. you know, in different, different, like a wetter regime where there's more, you know, it's just a different situation. But the species that do well here are often from similar type climates, often even harsher than here. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, challenging species in our environment that come from uh, Siberia and Mongolia and like, right. the, the deserts of, you of, know, Asia. of East Asia. Right. And it's because it's similar here <clears throat> to here, but, um, you know, Mongolia and 
you know, southern Siberia, I mean, it's like even more extreme. Right. So if these species evolve in those regions, then they come here and it's, it's just super cushy and they, they just love it. This is Jim O'Donnell, and this is the uh, Taos Land Trust Hour. We need a better name for that. Uh, but I'm here with Ben Wright, also of the Taos Land Trust, and we're talking about some of the work that uh, the Taos Land Trust is up to and some of the things that we're thinking about. Um, we're here on KNCE Taos, True Taos Radio 93.5 FM. So, Ben, we were talking about invasive species and them following us around, and um, one of the stories that you had you were telling me a couple of weeks ago or a month or so ago was was about Siberian elms. We were just talking about trees and plants from Asia that really like it here. Tell why 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 there, there's so many Siberian elms or Chinese elms in Taos and all over New Mexico. Why? Uh, well, that's a good question. So when I did my master's degree at Oregon State University, the topic of my research was Siberian elm in New Mexico. So I've, I've studied it quite a bit. I've studied the, just the general idea of invasive species and how that integrates with people and management decisions and all that. Siberian elm, it's, it has a mixed uh, <clears throat> review as far as I can tell. I've actually traveled throughout the northern part of the state uh, talking to people about this particular tree. Um, it's Siberian elm, Chinese elm, they're the same tree. Right. Um, and there's a, a confusion to why the, there's two names. And, you know, if we have time, I can go into that. But basically, in Taos, and this is true generally throughout the state, a third of the trees growing in urbanized areas and developed areas are Siberian elm. So one out of three trees is Siberian elm. It's a huge number. And, and so if, if you can imagine if that tree wasn't here, we, we would really have a lot less canopy for shade and for wildlife habitat. At the same time, these trees, they're, they're very trashy. They, they don't naturally tend towards good structures and they really need to be maintained. And, you know, we're honestly, uh, I mean, not just New Mexicans, but, you know, in, in general, uh, there's a hard time in finding the resources and, you know, learning the techniques of good management. So these trees are not often being managed very well. And so they, they're really struggling. They're often uh, topped, which is not a great practice. Why? Why is that? I see that all the time around town. Well, why is that bad practice? It, well, it's bad practice because it, it really, well, there's a number of reasons. It depends on the tree, but the main reason that I see it as a bad practice is because when when you top a tree, such as Siberian elm or a willow, which I mean, the globe willows are commonly topped here, <clears throat> the structure that develops after the the topping is the branches are not very well attached. And so if you if you top a tree and you keep it maintained and you keep it suppressed, I mean you know it's going to be pretty safe. But if you top that tree and then leave it alone for a few years, the branches that are growing back are not well attached. They're going to be liable to be breaking in storms. And it's, it's really just not a healthy way to treat a tree like that. And the thing about Siberian elm is I think, you know, everyone knows that they're, they're very hard to kill. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I, I always tell people, 
cutting cutting the tree down to the ground is it's just a, a minor uh, disturbance for that tree because it it just comes right back in a more determined often a bushier right. form and so I mean really if you want to remove the tree I mean you have to get into more extreme techniques but basically the I mean these trees were introduced to the state of New Mexico starting uh, about the 30s and um, Governor Tingley, who was a longtime governor in New Mexico, he was a, a huge uh, supporter of these trees. He really believed that they were an, an answer to providing shade in uh, New Mexico cities. And he promoted these trees, I mean, not just for Albuquerque, but he had very strong seedling giveaway programs and communities from all over the state were able to go to Albuquerque, collect seedlings. This, this tree was pushed uh, very hard on the state and and now we see the result of it and you know rather and the thing is the tree is it's it's very drought adapted it doesn't you don't need very much water to take care of it it'll survive on almost no water right it needs a slight bit of water but it just does well and people see it as out competing native vegetation which is true because it's just it's just better adapted and of course then there's the seeding uh, and that's a huge management concern because in the spring the the seeds are just everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, and you know people like you know pick up trash bags full of seeds. And, right. And you know you can actually um, there's some interesting uh, culinary ideas using Siberian elm seeds. They're they're actually quite edible. Oh, I wonder if we could make a beer out of it. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that one. I've heard of people make grinding them and making pancakes. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, but you know, so potentially it does have a use. Uh, and so what's but what really is the problem then um, with having a tree that comes from somewhere else but is highly adaptable to this system, provides all the benefits like shade, can survive on low water? Why is that a problem? Well, the seeds are a problem, and if the trees are not pruned properly, they can be hazards. So they tend to break off in storms. Mm -hmm. the, the angle of attachment is very narrow. And they're just susceptible to that kind of breakage. So, I mean, that's another problem. I think that I will venture to say that um, I think people are offended by this tree in a lot of ways. I would agree. Because, you know, <laughs> it's here. It's clear it didn't come from here. It doesn't belong. So the question is, you know, is that important to consider? Is that important? Is that a reason to, I mean, I, well, honestly, I don't think we're going to eradicate this tree. I mean, I think it's here to stay. Right. And my attitude about it is that we have to learn how to manage it and certainly remove it whenever we see it uh, and we don't want it there. I mean, so around a septic system, for example, they're much easier to remove when they're small. If you let that tree establish for a couple of years, it becomes very difficult to remove. And we can come back to this in general in managing invasive species, but I think that we have to apply effort to manage these trees. And so sometimes that means spending money. Sometimes that means uh, learning how to take care of these things yourselves. But I think the important thing is just that we have to participate in the management of trees like these and plants that we're finding uh, less desirable. So the general idea of managing invasive species, I think, is about stronger participation in our landscapes. So, so what you're saying is we're not to necessarily eradicate 
the Siberian elm from New Mexico or from our communities. I don't uh, think we rather, can. You, that, right, that we can't, <laughs> but, but rather to, to actively manage, manage it so that it serves a better purpose for us. I, I think of some of, the, um, some of the parks, especially in eastern New Mexico, uh, Portales and yes, places like I this. Yes, I know that park. Yeah, it, a beautiful park. And it, I think, my me- if my memory serves right, it is like 100% Siberian elms, and it's beautiful shaded park very nice place to be and you know i'm not really advocating necessarily for the siberian elm or for invasive species but i do think that our very concept of what is invasive and what is not needs to be questioned i would agree with that and yes the that park in portales is very well cared for i've i've spoken to the management staff there and got a hit on how they go about it and um they prune those trees and they're they're providing shade and it's a nice park. There's grass underneath and, you know, they, they are actually working on it on a, a seasonal basis and, and caring for the trees. And, you know, they, they, I think that the attitude is that it's very hard to grow trees in a place like Portales. Mm-hmm. And um, they feel that as, as troublesome as they are, it's better than nothing. You know, right. I mean, they are, they add to human lives in that situation. Well, and I would argue that they do in Taos also. If, if if one out of every three of our trees is a Siberian elm, I just think of where I live, kind of near the plaza. Majority of the of the trees in that area are Siberian elms, and without those, we would have no shade. Yeah, and and I think we would we would uh, miss no shade on a hot summer day. Yeah, absolutely. Like today. Like today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Um, so, you know, we were talking about that in, these invasive species tend to follow us around. They, they like the disturbance that humans cause. They, they, um, they, th- they thrive in areas that we have uh, changed and altered. So how do our views on, on these invasives or undesirables impact the ability to have a functioning ecosystem? So beyond just the, what they offer for urban environments, how do they impact how we view or how do our views impact the ability to have functioning ecosystems here? That's another good question. I think that uh, when we see species that we don't uh, want in our landscapes, such as Siberian elm, and you know, of course, as we've been discussing, that's that's arguable and debated and all that. But I think what is missing in how to manage these species is the idea that that they do follow us around, as you described, but they're also like telling us. So if we if we look at a piece of land and we notice what is growing there, and so say, and I'm going to use Rio Fernando Park as an example, just because I've become well acquainted, and you know this is the context that I'm thinking about this. But you look out on the land there and you see. Uh, you see a lot of thistle. You see di- uh, there's actually four different kinds of thistle um, growing in different areas of the property, and the different kinds of plants are growing in the wetlands versus the uplands. But basically what we're seeing is the result of this, this farm that has not been managed in, in the last 30 years or so. And so these species are they're the ones that are surviving like after lack of farming. There's still some alfalfa there mm-hmm. in areas where I imagine that they're tapping into water. But the point is that these species are responding to the conditions that are there. And if we think about it, we can 
we can look at what's growing there and we can learn, well, if musk thistle is growing in this area, that means something is going on in the soil that allows this this plant to grow there. I mean, it's not accidental that it's growing there. And I think that the efforts to uh, manage these species holistically, we have to start thinking not just, well, I think that single species eradication techniques uh, are are more often than not doomed to fail. And because we're not really addressing the underlying reasons why those species are there in the first place. So take a, take a species like tamarisk growing along the Rio Grande and some of the tributaries. This is a, this is an issue throughout the Southwest, but that species there, there's, there's been a big drive to eradicate it. And yet it's very difficult because of the conditions that our historic actions have created. Right. And that, that's a complicated question and a very complicated species. It, it is presenting huge problems to riparian areas. Not so much in Taos. I mean, it's in Rio Verde and they're, they're managing it there. And there has been huge amounts of uh, funds applied to the management. There's concerns. It's complicated because certain uh, endangered species are actually nesting in the tamarisk. I think western willow flycatcher is a, is a big concern. We're looking at that possibility at Rio Fernando Park. That it's, um, that it's actually in the, the, Russian olive. In the Russian olive in that case. Right. The, if the western willow flycatcher, the endangered western willow flycatcher, is nesting in a grove of tamarisk along the Rio, uh, Rio Verde, for example, then they have to consider carefully how to manage that because they're actually violating the Endangered Species Act if they're to just go ahead and cut down all of those trees and take away the habitat for the bird. So there's that complication. And then, you know, then there's the whole herbicide question. And uh, tamarisk is often managed with herbicide, and many managers believe that that's the only way to manage it. And uh, But I think still that that's not really addressing the reason why tamarisk is there in the first place. Okay. And, you know, it's, it appears to be um, uh, out-competing native vegetation. And, you know, you would look at what's going on and say, yeah, this, this is true. But I think what is not considered is that the, the tamarisk is responding to a changes in the hydrological regime. With water use, as these rivers move through the southwest, the water is being drawn upon more and more. In this kind of these kinds of areas, uh, salinization is a huge problem, and so you have saltier and saltier soils. But tamarisk is attributed as actually it's being blamed for salinizing the soil, and there I've seen. Scientific studies that argue for it and right. against it. Right. And I, I don't know what the answer is personally. It may be true, but I think what I think what is really clear to me is that if the rivers are not allowed to flood in their natural way, you will not have willow and cottonwood regeneration. And I do know that they did a study where they, they restored the flooding regime to a, a stretch of river and um, took out the tamarisk, and then immediately we had cottonwood and willow regeneration, and the tamarisk was outcompeted immediately. And this was just simply restoring the water. And in cases where they remove tamarisk, but nothing is is done to address the the water flow issue, often what comes back is tamarisk again, right. and right. you know, or other species that are that can withstand the 
drought-like conditions that we see along some of these riparian areas. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. But I think the, the key point is that in order to manage these species properly, we have to think more holist holistically, and we have to look at how we are affecting the water flow, how we are affecting the conditions that promote the native species that are there. If we want native species, if we want these certain desirable species, we have to look at how our management actions are affecting their ability to be there. So this is Jim O'Donnell of Taos Land Trust. I'm here with Ben Wright, also of the Taos Land Trust. And we are talking about invasive species. And I'm going to advocate maybe for a moment for, for invasive species. I at be, one be careful. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and maybe I'm maybe I'm may, more playing devil's advocate. I'll I'll cover my butt by by saying that. But you know, I have read several articles over the years advocating for a new view of of endangered of sorry invasive species and looking at them in terms of they're here. We're not getting rid of them. How do we better manage? How do we better place our funds for management? of invasive species, but also how do we welcome them into what basically what we have created on this continent, which is a, a whole new ecosystem. This, it, the ecosystem that now exists in North America is not what was here 500 years ago. And in a lot of these, when I've been reading a lot of these articles, the thought comes up that, um, that you know, we Euro-American uh, colonizers are, uh, are also invasive species. But we're not talking about eradicating ourselves. So um, some people are. Some people are right. Some people definitely would would want that, but I, I don't see that happening either. How might we welcome some of these invasive species into a new vision of a North American ecosystems? And sh should we? Should we? You're asking a lot of hard questions, Jim. <laughs> well, that was the point of this. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's what I brought you on because I knew you could answer them. Yeah. I I uh, I wouldn't say go. I wouldn't go so far to say that I would welcome these species, but I I can go so far to say that I accept them. And if they're here and they're surviving and they're providing benefits, and they can be managed, then um, I mean some of them have a place in our in the ecology of our ecosystems. And so I mean I'm 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 making my own judgment. Uh, I think. Some of them we should make every effort to take care of whenever we see it, meaning get rid of it. And I mean, and for various reasons, which I can get into, but um, basically the, I mean, as I've been describing, I think that these species are here for a reason and they're here because we, we haven't really learned how to uh, properly manage our ecosystems. And so, for example, like even agricultural practices, which as we discussed are very inviting to invasive species and there's ways to perform agriculture to, to grow food on land that have a more balanced approach that so you have your weeds coming in and you just deal with them as they come along but you, you're not acting so aggressively on the land but you're you're working with the processes that are occurring i mean there's some permaculture uh, attitudes about taking care of invasive species which is like you know, as I've been describing, I mean, learning the reasons that they're there and addressing the underlying reasons that they're there and not just focusing on eradicating single species. But I, I just think so, that... So dive into that a little little bit deeper. 
looking at the underlying reasons. So if, if, uh, if land managers are looking to get rid of an invasive species, but they need to look at the underlying consequences, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but, but dive into that a little deeper. So in terms of, say, the, the tamarisk or in terms of, say, like the teasel that is on the, at Rio Fernando Park. Yeah, the, um, so at Rio Fernando Park, we have a lot of teasel. And uh, if you're not familiar with it, it, it looks like thistle. People often think it's thistle, uh, but the, they have uh, brown stalks that stick up and they're, they're actually quite attractive. Sometimes people pick them and mm-hmm. paint them and, you know, decorate with them. But Spread the seeds around. Yeah, spread the seeds <laughs> around. So... Well, I mean, that brings up, I'm going to take a, a sidestep here. Go for it. Many plant species co-evolved with human beings. And there's, it's just uh, in the history of evolution, angiosperms and mammals evolved together at the same point in the Earth's history. And so it's no coincidence that plants like burdock and hound's tongue have these burrs that stick to us. They have evolved to use us to move their seed around. And so, livestock. And livestock. livestock. Well, I mean, mammals in general. I right. mean, we have fur. I mean, we're kind of an unusual mammal and not having very much fur. But in general, mammals have fur, which these these little barbed seed pods stick to. And so, I mean, the whole idea that these species are following us around, I mean, it's not just, you know, that we're bad. It's that we're mammals. and right. And... We've co-evolved with many of these plants, and uh, we can't help it. You know, I mean, it's our job in a way to move these plants around. So to think about managing teasel in the wetlands of Rio Fernando Park, I mean, first of all, the the technique is to prevent them from seeding any further. So right now, the Youth Conservation Corps crews actually, right at this moment, I believe, they're they are clipping the heads of the teasel and bagging them. And we're trying to reduce the seed that's being moved around. And the, you know, the stalks aren't doing any harm, so we're not removing them. We're also digging up the young plants. And so we are focusing on a single species, but the other things we are doing on the land is we're going to be planting seed for uh, native species or more desirable species to take the place of the teasel in its functional role in in that environment. So managing the species, it's not just about removing it. It's like finding something finding else a to, replacement, to, to grow. Something and, to serve that function. Right. And, you know, so we have a, we're making choices and we've decided that we do not like this, this plant there. And part of the reason we don't like it is because it's very hard to control. And right. I think that, you know, that is a decision. There's other plants that are growing there that are not native that aren't they're more innocuous and we're you know we're not going to really um, spend our limited management resources on them. In the wetlands, we have teasel, we have Canada thistle, um, and we have uh, perennial pepperweed. Those are the main ones growing in the wetlands that we're really struggling with. And you know, there's areas where the grasses are very strong, and you see you know just a plant here and there and Basically, the grasses are suppressing the invasive species. In other areas, it's you know whole fields of Canada thistle, whole stands of teasel, areas of pepperweed that are really dominating that area. So the hope would be that by working on these species and by replanting with more desirable plants, and we, we've also conducted soil tests and we're looking for uh, mineral deficiencies. We're looking for the the triggers in the the soil biology for why these these plants are there and um i mean to give another example up on the 
uplands, uh, we're managing musk thistle, um, which is very common, and it's there's literally fields of musk thistle. Yes, and, there are. And it's it's very uh, profound, and it's hard to look at, and you know think that it could ever be managed. But musk thistle is a biennial, and again, if we can take care of the seed, and we do that year after year, we might be able to manage it, and we can get something else growing there. Um, the other things we're thinking about is, so as I said, we did soil tests in different areas of the property. And my understanding is that musk thistle uh, responds to uh, um, low phosphorus in the soil um, and perhaps low calcium. And so we're looking at how we can make amendments to the mineral component, components of the soil to restore the soil biology, which then would hopefully uh, restore more fungal elements in the soil over bacterial elements. I mean, I know I'm just kind of grazing over a lot of territory here. It's complex, here. but yeah. But, you know, the idea is that, is that many of these species are a result of dysfunctional soil biology. Right. And so the soil organisms, particularly um, fungal mycelium, are absent in the soil. And so plants that, have, that are more bacterially associated are the dominant plants, such as musk, musk thistle in this case. Right. So, so you're really talking about healing the soil, changing the conditions so that the, 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 the environmental and ecological conditions are more conducive to the plant species that we want. That's right. And I, I, I just constantly think of the, the, those large old Russian olives down closer to the Rio Fernando and their relationship to the fact that the larger Rio Fernando watershed is severely impaired. There's huge number of problems. Those trees are thriving. The willow flycatcher, uh, a native endangered species, could be nesting there. That's unclear at the, at the moment, but it's possible. Yeah, well, they've done three out of five of the uh, surveys to mm -hmm. detect its presence, and none of them have turned have up turned any. turned up so far. And so, I mean, we're starting to feel more confident that perhaps it's not there, um, which allows us to actually manage the Russian olives. And um, so I think... Well, it, sorry to interrupt you, but I was just going to, to make the point that because the larger Rio Fernando is impaired, because of those issues, that Russian olive is serving a purpose as in, in its spot. And yeah. so if, if, it, if, we, if we take it out and remove it, we need to find a suitable replacement or change the ecosystem to fill that role. Right. It's not going to happen by itself. Right. I think the important thing is to realize is, I mean, you can kind of turn, turn the thinking process around a little bit and see that the Russian olive is there because riparian alders and willows and cottonwoods are not there. And it's not, I mean, the Russian olive, as we described with the tamarisk, I mean, the Russian olive can be perceived as crowding out these native species. Right. But I, I think it's important to consider that there's reasons why the native species are, are not strongly present. And they're, they're there, but they're, they're, right. they're in a suppressed state. And I think that a lot of that has to do with impairments to the Rio Fernando watershed. I mean, right it speaks now... speaks to the larger issues. It speaks to the larger issues. So really to think about how to restore native vegetation, not only do we need to remove the plants and trees that we don't want and 
replant with uh, the species that we do want, but we have to address the the impairments in the river. And basically, we have to look for ways to find more water flow. I mean, that's the simple answer in the, the Rio Fernando. There's also other impairments, but just in my understanding with speaking with people from Amigos Bravos, the major concern is that there's just not enough water coming through there. And right. this impairment, impairment, by the way, goes back 400 years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not, it's not to the extreme that it is today, but I mean, there's, there's documents showing these impair, like people struggling over the water supply in the Rio Fernando, you know, back in the, you know, 1800s. It was, it was over appropriated from, it was over, over appropriated back then. <laughs> right. And, right. And so the Rio Fernando collaborative, which you spoke of the meeting tonight, there's going to be some talk about how, I mean, what does restoring a watershed like this look like? Right. I mean, well, what does it take? And it's a, it's a monumental task, but there's there's a lot of uh, organizations and individuals that are are very interested in seeing this happen for the reasons that we discussed. If we can get more water and better quality water flowing through the Rio Fernando watershed, it would help our our chances in um, moving uh, an invasive species riparian area in Rio Fernando Park more towards native habitat. This is Jim O'Donnell and Ben Wright. We're both with the Taos Land Trust, and we've spent the last hour talking mostly about invasive species and invasive species management. Um, we've got to wrap up now, and um, this has been Jim O'Donnell and Ben Wright of the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.